God, thank you for this morning um, and for your Sabbath day um, to rest, not just as a day off, but in union with you um, as a, a picture and a participation in that Sabbath rest of creation where you saw that what you had made was good uh, and you called us even very good. And today um, we get to feel that and we get to give that praise back to you. And we're grateful for it. And in this Advent season, we look forward to that time of new creation. Um, But until then and this morning, would you during the Sunday school time give us um, keen minds? uh, And would you give me uh, clarity of thought and speech as we talk about um, Kuiper and Calvinism and politics? That's in Christ we pray. Amen. So this is the third lecture that Kuiper gave in 1898 at Princeton on Calvinism as a worldview or a life system, which is foundational to different aspects and different parts of life. This lecture is on politics, Calvinism and politics. It is the most famous lecture um, from this series. Kuiper is known for a number of things, but theologically, Uh, His political theology, which he sets forth here, is probably the thing that he's most well-known for. And the category that he created that um, that you you were, if you were to study it, would study is called sphere sovereignty. So we're going to talk a lot about sphere sovereignty. We may skip over some other things just to get to the heart of that. And the reason for it is because it is unique to Kuiper, that he is... um, the, maybe not the creator of it, but certainly the one who fleshed it out and filled it out and uh, presented it to the public in a way that was specific. Um, that was specific. So <clears throat> we'll start at the beginning. I'm going to try and uh, uh, walk us through a little bit uh, easily, hopefully, into political theology by asking this question, what is politics? which is not necessarily a question that Kuiper asks, and it's not a definition that he gives, but the way that he begins his lecture and starts to talk about politics gives us an idea of what he means when he says the word politics, which is indeed a loaded word. And this is what he says. He says, God might have created men as disconnected individuals standing side by side and without genealogical coherence, Just as Adam was separately created, the second and third and every further man might have been individually called into existence, but this was not the case. For indeed, without sin, there would have been neither magistrate nor state order, but political life in its entirety would have evolved itself after a patriarchal fashion from the life of the family." So Kuiper is going to talk about state government or government in general, which we are going to talk about. But when he talks about politics or political life, he's actually talking about the whole of life. He's talking about a very broad concept that basically describes action in time with other people. And that action in time then entails different judgments about where and when and with whom we're going to act, what we're going to do, how we are going to do it in order to forge and sustain some kind of common life with each other. Now, Kuiper says that it would have, if there was no sin, it would have, that common life would have come from the family. Um, 
at its center, but it would have existed and we would have forged it together in families nonetheless. So then the question is, if politics is understood that broadly, then what is a Calvinist politics? What is Calvinism and politics? And he says that Calvinist politics has at its foundation a root principle. And this principle is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is a word that basically means God's rule or power over something. That's what sovereignty means. So if you have state sovereignty, which we're going to talk about, that is the state's rule and power over the people that are in that state. If you talk about popular sovereignty, that is the people's rule and power over themselves. But Kuiper says that the dominating principle of Calvinism was the sovereignty of the triune God over the whole cosmos. And we talked about this, Josh talked about this, when he talked about the whole worldview of Calvinism and how it's set differently from Lutheranism, that this dominating principle is not soteriological, justification by faith, but in its widest sense, cosmological. In all spheres and all kingdoms, visible and invisible, the triune Lord is the king. That's the principle. And he is the king, and so he describes it this way. A primordial sovereignty at the, from the very beginning, which irradiates in mankind all things in a threefold deduced supremacy. The sovereignty in the state, the sovereignty in society, and the sovereignty of the church. That's how he's going to um, break down his lecture. So the whole of humanity's life, common life, exists under the role of God, the rule and power of God. And therefore, politics isn't to be understood or reduced to party politics or government, but it has to encompass what he says, every sphere of life. Follow me so far? Okay. So he then takes this conception of Calvinist politics and he puts it in a theological context, which means that he's going to put it within what we call the story of redemption. And this story is is a narrative that describes the process and the progress of human life. And he says that formal political authority, governments or states, which Kuiper sort of imagines and defines in a very modern and Western context, right? He's not, he doesn't really talk about tribes. Um, He's talking about Germany and the Netherlands and the United States and England during that time. So that kind of state rule and power, he says, is the result of sin. The things were torn into chaos, and so man created governments in order to bring order to that chaos. Importantly, therefore, conversion, whereby political officials are obedient to God, who is king and sovereign over all, is required. That the people, and this is different than a politics where participating in that politics is itself a conversion, if that makes any sense. Where in working together, maybe uh, through a process of um, uh, political organizing is like this. When people get together in political organizations, it in and of itself becomes this means of conversion where people come in, they bring their friends, and then their minds are changed and they come into this way of life. Kuiper says that's not how this works. 
He said, the people that are in charge of the government are converted and they are servants of God. And as servants of God, then they enact their rule or power in a specific way, which is secondarily to God's rule and power. So this is how he describes it. He says, when therefore humanity falls apart through sin in a multiplicity of separate peoples, when sin in the bosom of these nations separates men and tears them apart, and when sin reveals itself in all manner of shame and unrighteousness, the glory of God demands that these horrors be bridled, that order return to this chaos, and that compulsory force from without assert itself to make human society a possibility. This right is possessed by God and by Him alone. Authority over men cannot arise from men. Otherwise, such a right necessarily and immediately becomes the right of the strongest. Skip down to the end of that paragraph. And thus, to the first Calvinistic thesis that sin alone has necessitated the institution of governments, this second and no less momentous thesis is added, that all authority of governments on earth originates from the sovereignty of God alone. The magistrate is an instrument of common grace to thwart all license and outrage and to shield the good against the evil. But he is more. Besides all this, he is instituted by God as his servant. The magistrate is not a servant of the state. The magistrate or the political official is not a servant of the people. The magistrate, the political official, is the servant of God and ought to understand himself or herself as such. Therefore, all the powers that be, whether in empires or in republics, in cities or in states, rule by the grace of God. So two things are important here for Kuiper. One is that conversion has to happen up front so that the political officials can be servants of God. If they are not that, then they are trying to rule over their other men as sovereigns. And when other people try to rule over their neighbors as sovereigns, oppression and domination happens. You see what I'm saying? That's the, pro- that's the main problem that he sees with this. He says, if you don't take God as the king and you make yourself the king, then you are going to oppress somebody. Somebody is not going to be the king and somebody is going to be brought low. And this is what he sees. There, now, The question then is what form should that government take, right? If God is the king and men and women who are in positions of political authority are not to rule over their other men, then what form should government take with this root principle? And Kuiper says that each form of government is legitimate, provided that its fealty is to the Lord. So he's going to say that it doesn't matter if you're a monarchy, it doesn't matter if you're a tribe, it doesn't matter, um, what does he say, if you're um, any kind of government. Um, But Kuiper argues that Calvin, and of course Kuiper thinks this as well, that a Republican form of government is favorable and desirable. I know that is shocking to all of you. Um, But this is... This is part of where Kuiper is. And so he says, The question how those persons who by divine authority are to be clothed with power 
are indicated cannot, according to Calvin, be answered alike for all peoples and for all time. So time is different, place is different, where you live. Not everybody needs to be in a kingdom or a republic or something else. But he says, and yet he, that is Calvin, does not hesitate to state in an ideal sense that the most desirable conditions exist where the people itself chooses its own magistrates. Calvin considered a cooperation of many persons under mutual control, a republic, desirable now that a mechanical institution of government is necessitated by reason of sin. This is, Kuiper is, um, is very much representing his time um, in saying this. In 1898, this is before World War I. World War I is known as the beginning of um, the end of the modern project, or at least this time when people realized that progress wasn't what we thought that it was going to be. Because the technology that we had created and made for ourselves, we ended up using against ourselves to kill each other. But 20 years before that, we were still under the auspices of the modern project and the Christian project worked together. And therefore, there was some manner of synthesis that existed between the sovereignty of God and the Republican state. Because Republicanism, as understood in John Locke and Rousseau and the people that foundationally, philosophically created this country, did so as a way to liberate people, right? That was the modern project, the progress of the human person through freedom and liberation of the individual. And Kuiper is saying that God gives that. Indeed, I I believe that he makes the argument um, that Calvinism is the best way for this to take place. So the summary that he gives here, there's one, two, and three. One, God only and never any creature is possessed of sovereign rights in the destiny of the nations because God alone created them, maintains them by his almighty power, and rules them by his ordinances. Sin, two, sin and the, it has in the realm of politics broken down the direct government of God and therefore the exercise of authority for the purpose of government has subsequently been invested in men as a mechanical remedy. And three, in whatever form this authority may reveal itself, man may never possess power over its fellow man in any other way than by an authority which descends upon him from the majesty of God. Are you with me? Does anybody have any questions before we move on? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into that. Let, let's keep going. Let's keep going, and we'll get to that. So he's going to talk about, so these alternative next, right? So we talked about the Calvinist point of view and how it begins to synthesize with republicanism, but what about French republicanism? What about the French Revolution? How is that different than what he's talking about, because it must be different, because he does not like the French Revolution, right? And basically, what he says is that the French Revolution has as its root principle popular sovereignty in an atheistic way. And therefore, he says here in the middle of that paragraph, basically, all power, all authority proceeds from man. So he says, if you just have popular sovereignty and you don't have divine sovereignty, then you're going to get the French Revolution. And what does he say about the French Revolution at the end? What is the result? 
Has the revolution resulted in anything else but the shackling of liberty and the irons of state omnipotence? No. No, indeed, no country in our 19th century has had a sadder state history than France. So he's not just doing this. I mean, he's arguing that this isn't just an idea. He's saying that the French Revolution has played this out, that they actually aren't in a better place than they were before. They are not achieving the progress that modernism promises in the way that they thought that they would. The flip side of that is state sovereignty, what during that time was German social democracy, um, which, I, which is very complicated, obviously, um, but it's the beginning of the welfare state, um, really broadly understood. It is um, kind of the beginning. It is going to mesh with Marxism in an important way and create communism. The Bolshevik Revolution has not happened yet, so communism, as we understand it, doesn't exist. But Marx is writing, um, and it's this idea that is not especially or inevitably Marxist, but is in the middle of Marx, Marxist theory of politics requires that the state, which having no one above itself, actually becomes God, that the state is itself this ruling power. Now, Marx wanted that state to go away, and the sovereignty existed to the proletariat, but that is another conversation altogether. But you see the point that Kuyper understands these concepts of sovereignty, whether it's popular sovereignty, state sovereignty, or divine sovereignty, as foundational to an underlying worldview that narrates the character and purpose of government, right? That this is a principle that makes the government what it is and is uh, foundational to how it plays out in real life. These notions of sovereignty are um, motivators and they provide direction for how the state government is going gonna, is gonna to operate themselves. And so Kuyper makes clear that divine sphere sovereignty first prevents the violence and domination present in non-Calvinist political alternatives. So it gets rid of the oppression that exi- or the, do- the violence that existed during the French Revolution, or maybe the dominance and oppression that occurs under um, German social democracy as he sees it. But two, it establishes and enables freedom. And in this way, his understanding of Calvinist politics are a modern politics par excellence, which is to say that they support the modern project, human progress by way of liberty, more than any other system in the world. And Kuyper imagines a modern political philosophy built on the moral and intellectual capital of Calvinist readings of Scripture. Does that make sense? So... To answer your question, Kim, which we're going to begin to flesh out, the Calvinism, the, the sovereignty of God, becomes the motivator. It becomes the, the means of direction and the capital on which the government is built so that men can rule over other men in the right way, which is to say, give them the freedom and liberty of conscience, of family, of church, of everything else. Does that make sense? That, and that is, that's part of, of Kuyper's argument. He's saying only the Christian story, only building government on the Christian story is going to enable people that are in charge of governments to act in that way, which is why they have to be converted in order to do that. Okay. He then goes into what he is known for, which is this idea of... Sphere sovereignty. And I'm going to have to introduce 
this a little bit. So there are four primary patterns of church-state relations, okay? The first pattern of church-state relations is one of separation, where the church and the state butt heads. Now, they don't necessarily have to be in conflict with one another, but they are separate from one another. This is what the Anabaptists did. This is what the Amish are, okay? That there is a separation between these two things, and the two kingdoms ought never to be together. That's the first one. The second is a subordination where the church and the state lay on top of each other. This was the Lutheran conception of the two kingdoms, okay? Where the, either the church is part, a part of the spiritual things and the state is in charge of the body or the other things, or the flip side of that is papal authority, where the pope, where the government is subservient to the rule of the pope. Either way, they're not in conflict with one another, they're not separate from one another, but one of them is subordinate to the other, either the church to the state or the state to the church. The third is one of integration. This is what played out essentially in the Church of England, that there was a national church, that the king is crowned in Westminster Abbey, um, that they work together and are integrated together. This was true also in 19th century Spain. And then there is a form of mutual discipline um, where the church and state have a responsibility to one another, but they limit each other in certain ways. This is the Calvinist conception where the church and state are not integrated together, but they do exist and work together because that's where people live and work, and Christians can be in government, and they are meant to give the proper limits on one another. Does that make sense? Now, what Kuiper's going to say is that these limits, these responsibilities that the church has are going to spill into society. Because the church doesn't just exist inside the church building. That the church, we talked about last week, consists of confessing individuals. And we as confessing individuals go to work and we have families and we have neighbors and we participate in different um, community groups and institutions. Some of us are journalists or academics, which in of themselves are their own kind of sphere. So he says this rule of mutual discipline has to be able to exist in society if it's going to exist in the church. Does that make sense? Okay, so here is what he says. In a Calvinistic sense, we understand hereby that the family, the business, science, art, and so forth are all social spheres which do not owe their existence to the state and which do not derive the law of their life from the superiority of the state, but obey a high authority within their own bosom, an authority which rules by the grace of God just as the sovereignty of the state does. This involves the antithesis between state and society, what we call in the United States the separation between church and state. But upon this condition, that we do not conceive this society as a conglomerate, but as analyzed in its organic parts, to honor in each of these parts the independent character which appertains to them. For just in proportion as it honored and the authority of the magistrate instituted by God, did it lift up the second sovereignty, which had been implanted by God in the social spheres, 
in accordance with the ordinances of creation. The ordinance of creation being the cultural mandate of be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. That these different spheres exercise their dominion in different ways. That you as father and mother, mother exercise dominion over your children in a way that the state shouldn't and can't exercise dominion over your children. That's the kind of thing that he's arguing for. It demanded for both independence in their own sphere and regulation of the relation between both, not by the executive but under the law. And by this stem, stern demand, Calvinism may be said to have generated constitutional public law from its own fundamental idea. The idea is here fundamental, therefore, that the sovereignty of God in its descent upon man separates itself into two spheres. On the one hand, the mechanical sphere of state authority, which is government, and on the other hand, the organic sphere of the authority of the social circles. And in both these spheres, the inherited authority is sovereign. That is to say, it has above itself nothing but God. Do you see, you see the point here? That the church and state relations of mutual responsibility and discipline to one another is going to extend itself into society. But here's what Kuiper does that's really unique to him. That he begins to separate society into all these different spheres. The family, business, science, art, and so forth. And he's going to say that each sphere within society has a responsibility to the other and mutually limits each other. Okay? So if you are part of the sciences, if you are part of the academy, if you are part of, of journalism, if you are a mother or a father, if you are an artist, if you are a business person, all of those are different spheres. And therefore, in those spheres, have their different kinds of sovereignty because God, who is king over all, has given them different rules and laws under creation. There are different ways to run a family than to run a state, to run a business, to be an artist, to be a scientist. And those have, and God created things with that kind of independence. Therefore, each sphere has to allow for that independence to take place and help the other one to maintain that independence. That's what sphere sovereignty is. So let me give you an example of how this played out in Holland after he became the prime minister. There was a reformed newspaper. There was a reformed university. There was a reformed school for children. There was a Catholic university. There was a Catholic newspaper. There was a so there were all library. There were all these different parts that were in accordance with their own spheres of sovereignty. But because it was Republican, it couldn't just be Calvinist. It had to be the other things as well, which he's going to talk about here in a second. But each sphere has the responsibility to the other and is meant to limit it. That this integration between church and state isn't dualistic, it's multiform. There's tons of them, and they have the same responsibility. So this is what he says, sphere sovereignty. In this independent character, a special higher authority is of necessity involved, and this highest authority we intentionally call sovereignty in the, in the individual social spheres, in order that it may be sharply and decidedly expressed that these different developments of social life have nothing above themselves but God, and that the state cannot intrude here and has nothing to command in their domain. As you feel at once, this is a deeply interesting question of our civil liberties, freedom. 
In relation herewith and on entirely the same ground of organic superiority, there exists side by side with this personal sovereignty, the sovereignty of the sphere. The university exercises scientific dominion. The Academy of Fine Arts is possessed of art power. The guild exercised a technical dominion. The trade unions rules over labor. And each of these spheres or corporations is conscious of the power of exclusive, independent judgment and authoritative action within its proper sphere of operation. Behind these organic spheres, with intellectual, aesthetical, and technical sovereignty, the sphere of the family opens itself with its right of marriage, domestic peace, education, and possession. And in this sphere also the natural head is conscious of exercising an inherent authority, not because the government allows it, but because God has imposed it. Paternal authority roots itself in the very lifeblood and is proclaimed in the fifth commandment. And so also finally it may be remarked that the social life of cities and villages forms a sphere of existence which arises from the very necessities of life and which, therefore, must be autonomous. Because the church exists and operates in multiple spheres of the state, family, art, science, journalism, education, which God, who is the king and sovereign over all things, allows to function differently according to their own practices, then these spheres are not subject to the sovereignty of each other. They are subject to their own sovereignty under God, and they are meant to, they have a responsibility to the other spheres and the ways in which they are related. I am both a worker a tradesman and a husband. So they have that responsibility, but they limit each other necessarily in knowing which is which, depending on where you are. Questions? Yes. Yeah, he's going to get into this um, and talk about how God is the Lord of the conscience. And so in God being the Lord of the conscience, there definitely is that thing that you're talking about where um, each person has, and this is, this is a Reformation principle, right? Um, each person has the ability to come to the scriptures and interpret them um, as, they, as they see them. Uh, but then he's going to say the church has its own right to decide who's going to be in and out of its, in and out of its bounds. So um, he, he doesn't necessarily accommodate for the thing that you're talking about in the way that you're saying, but he does separate the spheres in such a way that it says, well, if the family is deciding however they want to read scripture, but they're going to a particular church, and then that, that church then, under its own spheres, has the ability to say that that's heretical or not um, and act accordingly. Does that make sense? Is this confusing? Okay, great. Yes. Yes.
if, I mean, it is difficult to be on the same page with someone that would think that the authority of whatever these things are come from a different place. That is, that is difficult. That's sort of the first rule of philosophical conversations. You have to be playing with the same language. You have to be somewhat near the same page. Um, and it does make it difficult. It's like trying to, to tell someone about how awesome baseball is in a place that's never actually seen baseball, um, but maybe cricket. And you keep like trying to go back and forth, but they're just different games and it doesn't really make sense. And like that's, that's what it is. That's what it is like. Yes. Yes. Correct, and those limitations are meant to, in, in, in the UK um, and under Kuiper's conception, they, those limitations are meant to promote individual liberty. They're, they're meant to promote freedom. So, which is a, a good way to get into the next thing. Okay, so how then are we to coordinate the state and society? What can the state do then if, these, if there are different social spheres? And in the first part, he says, bound by its own mandate, therefore, the government may neither ignore nor modify nor disrupt the divine mandate under which these social spheres stand. In the second paragraph, he then gives them three duties or rights that whenever different spheres clash to compel mutual regard for the boundary lines of each, two, to defend individuals and the weak ones in those spheres against the abuse of power, of rest, and three, to coerce altogether uh, to bear personal and financial burdens for the maintenance of the natural unity of the state. That decision cannot, however, in these cases, unilaterally rest with political officials. The law here has to indicate the rights of each, and the rights of the citizens over their own purses must remain the invincible bulwark against the abuse of power on the part of government. That's what I mean by the limitations are meant to promote freedom, and that includes defense of those liberties, whether that be physical or financial or political. The last sentence in the last paragraph. From this one source in God, sovereignty in the individual sphere, in the family, and in every social circle is just as directly derived as the supremacy of state authority. These two must therefore come to an understanding. 
and both have the same sacred obligation to maintain their God-given sovereign authority and to make it subservient to the majesty of God. The state and the society has to be on the same page for this to take place. How then do we coordinate the state and the church, just as the state and society are in their own spheres? Calvin real, or Kuiper realizes that there's a difficulty in this question because Calvin, he says in this first, first sentence, our old Calvinistic confession of faith entrusts to government the tasks of defending against and of extirp- extirpating every form of idolatry and false religion and to protect the sacred service of the church. That under the old Calvinistic confession, the government was meant to convert people to Calvinism. He says, but we can't do that. So he says, the accusation is therefore a natural one that by choosing in favor of liberty of religion, which is what we've been talking about, we do not pick up the gauntlet of Calvinism, but that we directly oppose it. So he is going against Calvin here. He says, the sphere of the state, uh, the last paragraph, stands itself under the majesty of the Lord. In that sphere, therefore, an independent responsibility to God is to be maintained. The sphere of the state is not profane, but both church and state must, each in their own sphere, obey God and serve his honor. And to that end, in either sphere, God's word must rule. But in the sphere of the state, only through the conscience of persons invested with authority. So while the political officials themselves must be converted in order to legislate according to divine sovereignty, those laws must support the sovereign religious life of the unconverted. Um, and the sovereignty of the state and the sovereignty of the, of the church exist side by side, and they mutually limit one another. The reason why, and Kuiper gives this whole explanation um, as to why Calvin was trying, was, was doing the opposite of what Kuiper wants to do, and he says basically because he inherited it from Rome, um, that the Reformation and any kind of Protestantism or Protestant political theology in Europe had to, had to define itself against what Catholicism had done throughout history as a ruling church. <clears throat> and so they both borrowed from that intellectual capital. They understood the role of the church as a, as a political authority from Catholicism, but then they had to define itself against that. We in the United States did not have to do that, and to my understanding, might have been the first country in the world to be Protestant in its government or in its under foundational root principle understanding without having to define itself against Rome because we didn't have that, and that caused its own host of issues, which I will briefly mention at at the very end. But you see, um, for church-state relations, um, under that heading, the second-to-last paragraph, in Christ, the Calvinists contended the church has her own king. Her position as the state is not assigned her by the permission of the government, but jure divino. She has her own organization. She possesses her own office bearers. And in a similar way, she has her own gifts to distinguish truth from the lie. From the heat, from the lie. It is therefore her privilege and not that of the state to determine her own characteristics as the church and to proclaim her own confession as the confession of the truth. Government can't legislate over the state because it doesn't know what to do. And the church itself has structured itself with its own form of government. It has its own leaders that execute their own kinds of discipline that create their own sense of liberty for the people that are in it. 
the last relation. We've done state and society, church and state. Now we do the individual person. The sphere reaches not just into these realms of society, but into the conscience of the individual, for God is Lord of the conscience. The end of that first paragraph. This, however, does not prevent my maintaining the sovereignty of conscience as the palladium of all personal liberty, in this sense that conscience is never subject to man, but always and ever to Almighty God. Similarly, in the last sentence of the third paragraph, what the government in this respect demands of the churches, it must practice itself by allowing to each and every citizen liberty of conscience as the primordial and inalienable right of men. The, the example he gives for the church is that the church may not be forced to tolerate as a member one whom she feels obliged to expel from her circle, but on the other hand, no citizen of the state must be compelled to remain in a church which his conscience forces him to leave. So he not only is building on the intellectual capital of Calvinism and the word of God, but republicanism also and a form of common sense moral reasoning that existed during the modern time. That the Lord, that indeed because God is Lord of the conscience, that we can and have our judgment, we are, he is judge over us and the decisions that we make and no institution or form can do anything other than expel from, our own, from that kind of sphere. And so he again, in the very last part, this is how he ends, this is the very end of the, um, of the lecture. He says, in the French Revolution, a civil liberty for every Christian to agree with the unbelieving majority, and Calvinism, a liberty of conscience, which enables every man to serve God according to his own conviction and the dictates of his own heart. That's what Kuiper was going for. And he demonstrates his project then in this way as a synthesis of Calvinism and Republicanism in his modern context. And his bet is that the intellectual underpinnings of Calvinism will win the day. But what happened instead was different. And it is debated what happened, but when the narrative of human progress seized with World War I and then the Holocaust, the society that modernism built could not renew or recreate the story of redemption outside or apart from the church, which at best had been relegated to its own sphere. That when the church got relegated to its own sphere, then and people had by their own liberty of conscience to exist in whatever sphere they wanted to, we found out that modernism, that this sort of freedom, could not produce the kinds of people it needed to keep going. It could not, people on their own needing to be converted wouldn't convert themselves. But indeed, instead of using their conscience, having their liberty of conscience according to their conviction and the dictate of his heart to serve God, they ended up agreeing with the unbelieving majority of the French Revolution. And that indeed is the place where we find ourselves today in this large argument about what to do about those things. How do we pursue these ideas of freedom and liberty that were formerly built on a Christian story that now don't have any story at all? 
and the majority of the people don't have that story, and yet we have to continue to maintain this life of the family and of science and of education and of everything else, and it is problematic, to say the least. Questions? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. He, he's not specific. The only general principle he gives is that um, the organizing principle of government is the result of sin. Um, and the kinds of spheres that we're talking about would have existed and, um, prior to that under the cultural mandate. Um, so our desire for scientific inquiry and exploration, the education of our families, um, the, the life of our family together, those uh, the work um, in different places and that all of those would have existed prior and that's how we determine those spheres, but nothing specific. Yes, we'll have like one more minute. That's absolutely correct. That separating life into spheres is a very modern concept. It's not something that they would have done prior to 1500. Yes, Tamara. Yeah, I mean, he's going to give that. That's correct. But the idea of separating them into spheres is still a judgment that he would that he's making. But yes, they're absolutely from scripture and they exist prior to to the fall. That work and art and science and education and family life are all things that would have happened um, under the reign of God in Eden um, had none of those things happened. Okay. Thanks. If you have any questions, you can come ask me. Um, and we'll talk about science next week. Let's stand and pray. Oh, Lord, um, you are our great God and King, um, and we love you um, as such. And it is remarkable to us that as that King, um, that you humbled yourself and came down as an infant so that you might rule and reign over us as a sympathetic 
and compassionate and good God to give us freedom from ourselves and from sin and from corruption and new and true life with you where our work and our families and our questions and our aesthetics are renewed and recreated and redeemed by the Lord Jesus. May this time now of worship be honorable and pleasing to you because we love you and you are our king. It's in Christ we ask it. Amen.